Romans, and I'm going to read the uh, first 14 verses of John 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard this, that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and he jumped into the sea. Uh, But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about 100 yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they all knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This, is how the, this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Got the blues. I wonder if you've ever heard that expression. When I was growing up in Mississippi, I heard it from time to time, but I especially heard it from uh, my mother-in-law who said it frequently when she was frustrated or upset about something. She would say, got the blues. Now, my wife hated this when she was a child because she thought her mother was using the Lord's name in vain. Uh, saying God, but she wasn't saying God. She was saying, got the blues. Now, maybe that expression didn't migrate over to the Carolinas from Mississippi, but any Mississippian really would have been familiar with the blues, either as a musical genre or as a feeling of melancholy or depression. Whether you know it or not, Mississippi, my home state, is the birthplace of the blues. Alabama has the Robert Trent Jones Golf Trail, 26 beautiful golf courses at 11 different sites, which tourists and visitors to Alabama can visit. South Carolina has the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor, where you can visit some of the prominent uh, spots of the Gullah Geechee people. I'm learning what North Carolina has. I know about the uh, Tobacco Road rivalry in basketball and in stock car racing. I'm sure there are other events that draw tourists here to go on various journeys and trails. But Mississippi has the Mississippi Blues Trail, which you can follow throughout, mainly throughout the delta of Mississippi, and stop at juke joints and historic sites where legendary blues men, singers and musicians, plied their trade ever since the 19th century. The blues, as Matt indicated, has had a profound influence on other musical styles, but especially on gospel, uh, country music, rock and roll, and soul music. 
course, you don't have to be from Mississippi to know about the blues or to have the blues. You don't have to have been one of the slaves on the many Delta plantations in Mississippi to know about the blues. But because the blues is really a universal phenomenon. The blues speak of misfortune, betrayal, heartache, pain, disappointment. You lose your job. Your lover leaves you. Your dog dies. Your crops fail. Your hopes are crushed in one way or another. Then it is that you too have got the blues. And who of us has not experienced times and seasons of sadness and frustration and disappointment and despondency, even despair, as we make our way through life? These mood swings are sometimes brought on by body chemistry, sometimes by a change in life circumstances, sometimes even by the weather. In the midst of winter, we often read an article in the newspaper or magazine about the return of SADS, seasonally affective disorder, where people actually go into lethargy and depression due in part to the diminishing amount of warmth and sunlight, and they enter into a mood of despair doesn't affect everyone like that some people are actually energized by the shortening of the days and the lessening of light hunters in particular snowboarders and skiers they love it when winter arrives and they're actually energized by it but not everyone and I have a confession to make this morning I too suffer from seasonal affective disorder but of a different type and I have just entered into the season uh, when my life is disordered and effective uh, and it's an occupational hazard for those of us who are clergy but it begins right after Easter every year when we too get the blues and the blahs. How so? Well I can't tell you about it. You have to sing about the blues if it's really the blues you have. So I got the post-resurrection baby predestined low Sunday blues and if you ain't had them, I sure hope that you never do. Cause the palms have all wilted, the lilies are brown, the pews are near empty, and the choir's out of town. I got the post-resurrection, baby, predestined low Sunday blues. They do call this Sunday after Easter, low Sunday. Uh, uh, Someone told Mr. Bell told me this morning when I was visiting that uh, one of your former pastors, Gerald Shetler, said this was what Oakwood Sunday, Oakwood Sunday, because he could look out and see all the oak on the pews and nobody sitting out there. <laughs> but it happens every year. Last Sunday, nearly 1,300 joyful worshipers in their Sunday best singing Hallelujah, the Hallelujah chorus. Vibrant worship, friendship, the organ at full stop. It was a day to celebrate. And on Easter, you have more of everything that you want to have every Sunday of the year. More joy, more exuberance, more vibrancy in worship and in the faith. And every year, I think, they're going to be back. They'll be back the next Sunday. Every Christian knows that each Sunday is supposed to be a little mini Easter, if you will. We celebrate the resurrection not just on Easter, but every Sunday of the year. But it doesn't happen, or it hasn't happened yet. 
identify with Charlie Brown of Peanuts fame. Every autumn, I think Lucy's going to hold that football and let him kick it this year. But no, she never does. She pulls it away and he falls on his backside. We tease a lot about the Christmas and Easter crowd. Um, I try to ignore saying anything about that on either Christmas or Easter because I'm delighted to have people in church, whatever brings them there. But I have to tell you about, uh, in fact, I was telling someone this past week about a man who was in the church I served in Vicksburg, Mississippi. When I went there, he was 96 years old. He had just broken his hip. He was on the decline. His name was John Roth. But Mr. John, who was an institution in that church and in that community, he couldn't stand to come to worship on Christmas and Easter because he would see all of these people that never showed up except on those two dates. And so what John Roth would do is he'd get in his car and he'd drive to Natchez, Mississippi to go to worship on Easter and Christmas. Not because he hated to see the people there on Christmas and Easter, because he regretted that they weren't there the other 50 Sundays of the year. He just couldn't stand it. He didn't want to remember all of those who took their discipleship with less seriousness, I guess, than he did. And so he drove to Natchez to worship. I asked him one day, Mr. John, what do you think those folks in Natchez think about this old man that comes there twice a year? He said, I never thought about that. <laughs> but he was devoted. Let me tell you how devoted he was. He was the Sunday school superintendent of that church for 70 years. Even at 96, he still was. He was a member of the session for 65 years. That was in days before you had the rotary system. Sometimes when we're talking to future elders, and they say, I'm not sure if I can commit for three years. I want to say, let me tell you about John Roth. <laughs> 65 years, and he was clerk of session for 59 years. Now, I've never known anyone to break those records. I'd like to know if anyone has. But anyway, he, he struggled with the whole crowd that never returned on low Sunday. It was depressing to him as well. And it's depressing for a lot of us. Uh, it was depressing that first time after the, the original Easter when Simon Peter, he had lost his Lord. He had heard rumors about a resurrection, but Jesus hadn't appeared to him yet. And so Peter hangs a sign on the door, I'm gone fishing. And some of the other disciples went with him. He had to get away from, from it all, get out of town. He was depressed and he was down in light of his Lord having been taken from him. We're not unlike the a psalmist that Matt referred to that William read about in the 13th Psalm. King David is in a bout of depression in this Psalm. He is venting his emotions, his feeling. He's lamenting his life situation. He tells God that, ask him, why have you hidden from me? How long will I have to go through this? When will you answer my complaint? When will you keep my enemies from exalting over me? He was in a depression. Now, if you go three psalms forward to the 16th psalm, you'll see just the reverse. At this point, David is ex exhilarated, positive. Life is good. The lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. I have a goodly heritage. He's celebrating life with all of its joys and blessings. A completely different mood swing, if you will. I don't know how close those two time periods were together, but David like you and me, experience both the ups and downs of life. The times of exhilaration and despair, of pleasure and pain, of cheerfulness and despondency. 
And with all this in mind on this low Sunday, I want to reflect with you on the top subject of depression in ourselves and in the lives of those we love and our friends of ours. Those seasons of life that we all know to one degree or another throughout our days. None of us and none of those that we love are immune to depression. I don't know many families that aren't impacted by depression in one way, shape, or form. Now, for definition's sake, let's just say that depression is a mild or intense experience of sadness, pessimism, apathy, even condemnation. It may be marked by feelings of unworthiness, of frustration, despair. It may be marked by insomnia, guilt, anger, restlessness, an inability to accomplish anything, even to get out of bed some days. And in extreme cases, it is even marked by thoughts of self-harm or suicide. Now, I would justify dealing with this subject today, not simply because it's low Sunday, that's a trivial matter, and not simply because, as I was told this morning, May is Mental Health Month, though that's an important thing to keep in mind. I'm dealing with it because I've experienced depression in my own family, as probably most of you have in yours. But I also know that Paul tells the Galatians, and he tells us, that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And one of the burdens people struggle with today, young and old, is depression. I think it would be helpful if we could better recognize it, better confess it, and seek help when needed in dealing with it. I think the first thing a depressed person ought to realize is just how common it is. How many folks go through this because there's so much stigma attached to any kind of mental illness and we're often embarrassed by it. We feel guilty that we can't overcome this feeling that we, that we have. It's been encouraging in recent weeks. Uh, a number of popular lungs, young celebrities have come out and shared their own struggle with mental illness. People like Selena Gomez and Britney Spears and Justin Bieber have shared with their fans and followers, you know, what they have struggled with in their own life. Now, sometimes we just imagine folks like that, they don't have the same problems that we common folk do, but they do. And sometimes their very celebrity status keeps them from dealing with it honestly. I received a letter from my alma mater back in Mississippi a couple of years ago. They were trying to raise money from the alumni to add some counselors to the staff of the college and the president that wrote the letter shared some shocking statistics. I have no way of verifying these, but these are the statistics he shared. 25% of young adults between the ages of 18 and 24 have a diagnosable mental illness. 25%. Of that number, 73% will have a mental breakdown at some point during their undergraduate years. And even more distressing, one-third of those young people will never seek any help for it, either because they're embarrassed, because they don't know where to turn, or because they can't afford the help that is needed. So we're not alone if we're battling depression, and we need to know that, especially when we are in the 
midst of a depressive episode. Secondly, I think we ought to remind ourselves and those we love that these seasons of depression and of gladness are temporary at best. They change. They're not permanent. We often move from one to the other. And so, lest we be caught off guard, it's sometimes helpful to remember that in time this will change. King David pours out his lamentations in in 13, but as I told you, in 16, we see just the opposite. And in 13, as Matt read it, uh, was alluding to it this morning in the children's sermon, did you notice the past tense and the future tense? He said, I know that you've blessed me in the past. I've trusted in you, and I will sing in the future. I'm going to get through this. Sometimes when we're depressed, just remembering how God has been there in the past, how God has blessed us and brought us through various trials, can be an incentive for hope and confidence moving forward. In a third sense, I believe that one of the most helpful things that a person, a depressed person can do is admit first to themselves and then to others that they have a problem they're struggling with. It does little good to hide our feelings. And so many people hide in their depression. They don't want others to know about it. Especially Christians struggle with this because sometimes we think falsely that if our faith were strong enough, our trust were strong enough, we would be having this problem. We think it's a sign of personal inadequacy or spiritual immaturity or something. But if you read your Bible, you will see that the great heroes and heroines of the faith struggle with depression like anyone else. King David, Jeremiah, Elijah, Job, even the Lord in the last week of his life struggled with his own deep deep grief and sorrow. And he says to his disciples in the garden, I am deeply grieved even unto death. Remain here and stay awake with me. I am persuaded that When depression comes, it needs to be recognized, acknowledged, and confessed. And if we help our loved ones and friends to do so, then we will help them bear this burden that they are carrying because they don't need to carry it alone. Furthermore, I believe that depressed people ought to be allowed and even encouraged to vent their emotions and their feelings if they can do so without bringing harm to themselves or others. If they want to cry, let them cry. Encourage them to cry. That's why the Lord gives us tear glands. If they want to scream, close the windows and shut the door and let them have at it. Sometimes that helps. I think depressed people need the liberty every now and then to do something a little crazy. I remember reading about a married couple that were both in a depressed mood at the same time. And if you're married, you know how deadly that can be. Because uh, one needs the other to pick them up and they're not there when both are down. And in this particular situation, the wife was venting her anger and her feelings and a horrible fight broke out between the two of them. Uh, The woman flew into a rage and she grabbed a valuable vase and she crashed it into the middle of the kitchen floor. Tension filled the air and the husband stared furiously at her until he reached over grabbed a quart jar of mayonnaise and handed it to her. Smash in the middle of the floor. A smile started coming to his face. He grabbed the jelly, then the pickles, and then the olives. Smash, smash, smash. By the sixth smash, both of them had collapsed, laughing hysterically on the couch. Their pent-up frustrations and anxieties 
in a heap on the kitchen floor. What the husband wisely did was not only to allow but encourage his wife to go ahead and vent if that is what she needed. And she did so in a harmless, though admittedly messy, fashion. In addition, people who are depressed, whether it's us or others, need generous doses of patient love because that is a real tonic to depressed people. Of course, it's hardest to love people who are depressed. I've experienced this myself. Often the person who's depressed takes out their frustrations and their anger on the ones that are closest to them, the family and the friends. But if you really want to help someone bear that burden of depression, your love and your loyalty may require that you allow this person even to hate you for a while as you try to assist them and help them. Something that I've learned in dealing with depression in myself and in others is the importance of the therapy of touch. Sometimes we don't know the right words to say, but a hug and embrace, a clasp of the hand can communicate so much to a person in need. Have you ever noticed how the therapy of touch comes to play in the ministry of Jesus? Not only people reaching out and touching him, the woman who touched the hem of his garment, remember? But Jesus himself, daring to touch the untouchable. No one touched lepers in Jesus' day, but he did. And by the very touch, he communicated love and concern and compassion and help. One anonymous poet has put it this way, it is the human touch in the world that counts, the touch of your hand and mine that means far more to a fainting soul than shelter or bread or wine. For shelter is o'er when the night is gone and bread lasts only a day. But the touch of a hand and the sound of a voice live on in the soul alway. Finally, depressed people who often find themselves lethargic without energy or ambition need to be encouraged gently and sometimes more than gently to do something, the smallest thing that they can see the results of. Because so often when we're depressed, we think we're just spinning our wheels. We're getting nowhere in our career, in our relationships, with our own bodies and selves. We're just wasting time. So do something that you can see the results of. Clean out a closet. Go outside and wash the car. Write a poem. Write a song. I remember when my own mother was hospitalized for depression when I was growing up. And I alluded to this in our series on prayer. But she would come home from one of those occasions and she would have had all these crafts that she'd made. Baskets and plaques. The plaque that hung on our wall that I mentioned that said prayer changes things. My mother had made in one of her hospital stays. But I'm sure this is a part of the therapy in dealing with people who are depressed. To give them something they can do, they can see the results of. So, encourage those who are depressed to do something. The smallest thing might really assist them. And the more energy it requires to do it, the better it is. The medical community has long recognized the direct correlation between emotional and physical health. Physical exercise itself is an antidepressant. Now, it's difficult to get people to go out and walk or to exercise 
but they need it more than they realize. As I indicated earlier, most depressive episodes are temporary. They don't last forever. And perhaps if we could only acknowledge them when, we, when they come, if we could express our feelings in an adequate and harmless way, if we could have some patience and love around us, the therapy of touch, a little exercise and labor, perhaps our depressions would leave less damage in their wake and perhaps we would get through our depressions more quickly. I don't know if any of you here today are depressed. I bet you have been in the past. You may be in the future. I bet you know people who are in your own home or in, uh, in, among your family and friends and colleagues at work. But first, let's just admit what we are dealing with and then find ways to try to deal with it. Your staff here at, at the church are more than willing to meet with anyone who wants to talk about this. We have counselors on staff. If what we can, can't accomplish just through some of these practical things I've suggested, what we can do is help people to find a professional therapist or a counselor who can walk beside them as they go through this journey through the valley of the shadow of depression. It does happen to all of us, and we can recover. In 1835, a lovely young woman by the name of Anne Rutledge died, and the man she was in love with and who was in love with her went into a deep depression. Weeks after her burial, he was found wandering through the woods near the Sangamon River, mumbling incoherently to himself. He had friends that found him. They wouldn't let him have a pocket knife on his person, but they brought him back to their farm, bowling in Nancy Green, and they put him to work on the farm, digging potatoes, shucking corn, picking apples. And through the love and support of his friends and through the exercise and work he was going through, he came through that time of depression. And soon the old orderliness of his life returned. And by the fall of that year, Abraham Lincoln was able to return to his seat in the Illinois legislature. Yes, I've got the post-resurrection, baby, predestined low Sunday blues. But I've had them before, so maybe, baby, this ain't news. I know the Lord is with me. My friends are all around. With a little help and healing touch, I won't stay down. Despite the post-resurrection, baby, predestined low Sunday blues. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in our moments of darkness, in our times of depression, remind us of your presence with us and give us your grace. Help us to acknowledge and confess our feelings and to express them appropriately. Encompass us with the patient love of understanding friends and family who stand beside us and undergird us. Enable us to give help when and where we can and to seek help as we should. Free us not only to bear the burdens of others in the name of Jesus Christ, but to allow others to help us bear our burdens as well. And so we will all fulfill the law of Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.